morning. Years ago, I heard about a doctor who was about to deliver a baby, and he discovered that the baby was in the breech position. This was back in the day when cesareans were uncommon, and the death rate of breech babies was pretty high, relatively speaking. Uh, the cord, the umbilical cord, becomes compressed, and it restricts the oxygen that gets into the baby's bloodstream. And after he drew the first leg out, he w tried to find the second leg and couldn't, and then realized the reason that he couldn't draw the second leg out is because on the second leg, the entire thigh was missing. And he realized that he was, he was holding in his hands a child who, uh, a birth defect that he had never seen before. And there, there came the hardest struggle, he said, that he'd ever had with himself because he realized that the effect that it would have on the mother, the effect on the family, he knew that they would travel the country seeking the best surgeons and orthopedics to try to help them cope with this, uh, this uh, challenge that they were undoubtedly going to face. He, in his mind's eye, he saw this little girl sitting on the side while all the other little girls danced and played. And he realized all of a sudden that there was something that he could do that would save every pain in this family's life except one. One in ten breech babies died. He dies, he reminds himself. And he, a small voice within him said, don't bring this suffering on them. This baby has never taken a breath don't let her take even one. You probably can't get it out in time anyway, so just don't hurry. The nurses had seen the doctor deliver dozens of breech babies. Many of them he had saved and some he hadn't. And he had decided this would be one that he would not save. As he was delaying, allowing time for the baby to die, the little pink foot that, what, that did come out pressed hard against the doctor's hand. And he, and, and he felt the life of this child. And he realized, he said, I couldn't do it. And he delivered the child alive and presented this, um, this baby with its defect to the mother, and all of his fears came true. They were crushed. The family was devastated, and his, his uh, prediction that they would indeed try to seek out and impoverish themselves, basically, to figure out a way for this child to have a normal life, all came to pass. They traveled for years trying to figure things out. He kept in touch with them for a little while, but eventually he lost touch, and he said that as the years went by, he blamed himself for not having had the strength to yield to his temptation. Life doesn't come to us in nice little packages. It comes to us wrapped um, with pain. Children are born with birth defects. Youth die in the prime of life. Marriages shatter. Churches split. And all the while, our powerful God looks on. Why does God often seem so absent? To the suffering and problems that we have in our lives. 
Well, let's look together at a book that's often used for that purpose of answering that question, and it's the book of Job. The challenge, of course, is that the book doesn't use, doesn't answer the question of suffering, but it uses suffering to answer a much bigger issue. And it's an issue that we, in suffering, need to have our arms around because there really is no greater comfort. Suffering is just the stage on which the true lesson of Job comes to pass. We're working our way through a series, through really the Bible, just taking a single message from each book of the Bible, and we finished the historical section of the Old Testament last time, and we're entering now what's called the poetry, the, the poetical section, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. And right at the beginning of the poetry section is the book of Job, always appropriate for our lives because it seems there's always something we're struggling with. <laughs> we're introduced to this man, Job, in chapter 1, and the first few verses, you just kind of scan down through, we won't read them, but it introduces us to Job as a man who was blameless and upright and fearing God and turning away from evil. This is Job. But now the scene shifts from earth to heaven in verse 6. And this is where we'll begin reading. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But... Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Wow. Let's make just a few observations here on these verses that we've looked at. First, and most obvious, there's a spiritual realm that we don't see. When we look at the suffering in our lives, we tend to look around, and the first people that we want to blame are the people that we can see. And then after that, we want to point to the Lord. But Job introduces us to another individual very involved in our lives, and that's Satan. And not only Satan, but of course, uh, demons. There is a spiritual realm which concerns itself. Notice their topic of conversation is what's happening on earth. They're focusing on what we're doing. And, and God points out Job. Boy, I'll tell you what. You just wonder, is it worth, sometimes you wonder, is it worth being godly if God's going to brag on you to Satan? Well, of course it is, but wow. The Lord brings up Job. 
And Satan responds. The New Testament says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual realm. The second observation we can note here is that Satan is accountable to God. They're not equals. It's not good versus evil in the sense of like versus like, good spy versus bad spy. This is a sovereign, all-powerful God, and Satan, as one of the many sons of God, as is referred to here in the angelic realm, is accountable to God and regularly has to give account to God. Satan is one of the angels, a fallen angel, who must report to the Lord. And finally, we observe that God has placed a hedge of protection around his children that requires Satan to have permission before bringing any kind of suffering into the life of a child of God. Christ told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. <laughs> that was said in the upper room. You know, if I'd been Peter, I would have said to Jesus, I hope you told him no. <laughs> but, but it did occur. And if that hedge wasn't there in all of our lives, Satan would destroy every one of us. There is a hedge of protection around us. There is a, a barrier by God's sovereignty. God says Job is blameless. Satan slanders in response both Job and God. Of course he's blameless. Just look at all you've blessed him with. It says, does Job fear God for nothing? Verse 9. Satan basically says, there's a reason he's such a great guy. You've blessed him incredibly. You protect him. Why wouldn't he love you? But take away all his toys, and now you're going to see the real Job. Now he will curse you to your face. In other words, the only reason Job loves God or fears God is because of what God has given him and what God has protected in Job's life. And the text goes on to say in the verses that follow that through evil men and through evil acts, or sometimes what we call today acts of God, acts of nature, Job loses all his children, all his livestock, all his servants, save the one that came to give the news. Look down at verse 20, at Job's response. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. 
Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. You know, as troubling as this divine wager seems to be between God and Satan, which I'm not sure we can fully wrap our arms around, this seems to be kind of a bet that's going on between God and Satan, but we know that its purposes are higher than that. In spite of that, at least we're aware of it. Poor Job had no clue about what you and I are privy to in these first two chapters. All Job saw is that stuff is being taken from him, and now even his health is being taken from him. The tension is removed from us because we know why it's happening, or at least we know the cause of it, but the tension that isn't removed from us is really the lesson of the book because it's the tension we have in our lives. And that is, how will Job respond? That's the crux. That's the crux of the wager. He will, he will curse you to his face. How is he going to respond? That's the crux of the book and that's the crux of our lives. How are we going to respond when the Lord allows situations in our lives that we cannot understand? These first two chapters show us very clearly that God isn't the one on trial here. Often when we come to the book of Job, we look at it for answers of, God, why aren't you dot, dot, dot. But the book shows us that God's not the one on trial. Job is the one on trial. Job is the one that we're wondering and waiting to see how he's going to respond. The question isn't, where is God when it hurts? The, the rest of the Bible deals with that beautifully. The question really is, where is Job when it hurts? The question isn't, where is God in the midst of Job's suffering? The question is, where is Job in the midst of Job's suffering? It's interesting, after chapter 2, Satan doesn't appear. And he doesn't need to, because Job's wife and Job's friends take over. And in a sense, they really do, because they have the same message. Look at verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. And then we're introduced to the three friends there. You know, Job is the only person who spoke when he was a newborn baby. How do we know that? Because chapter 3, verse 1 tells us he cursed the day he was born. Now, there may be some in this room that that's maybe actually true. 
I won't point in any, any fingers, but. Now Job curses the day of his birth, saying it would be better that I didn't, wasn't even born. Job's wife, uh, he, Job curses the day of his birth, but he does not curse God. Job's wife tempts him to do exactly what Satan said Job would do. She says, curse God and die. That's exactly what Satan said to the Lord that Job would do, curse God, but he doesn't. And Job's friends show up initially to comfort him, but instead all they do eventually is add to his pain. Now, we won't get into the many conversations that, that Job and his friends have that make up most of this book, but let me just add what you might be already aware of, just putting two and two together, and that is that the book of Job, chronologically, likely occurred during the time of Genesis. Almost certainly it was the time of Genesis, the time of the patriarchs, maybe even pre-Abraham. We aren't exactly sure when it happened because we aren't told. But there are a couple of hints that show us that it is the time of the patriarchs because Job's wealth is measured in the same terms that Abraham's wealth was with flocks and herds. Another one that's really the clincher is that Job offered sacrifices for his family. This is something that you didn't do after the time of Exodus and the law. Only priests could do that. So this has to be pre-law, which means that it is in the time of the patriarchs, which also means it's the time before there was Scripture. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So prior to Moses, there was no written word. It was all oral tradition. Job and his friends had oral tradition, we could assume, of uh, everything that happened prior to this, like creation, fall, and the flood, and all that. But uh, they didn't have all the rich theology that you and I have the privilege of having by having the entire Word of God. They didn't have any written Word of God. And so Job and his friends, especially his friends, are interpreting the events through the filter of common sense, through the filter of how they interpret events ought to be done, not through the filter of God revealing his sovereign wisdom to them. And that's important because when we start to listen to Job's friends' arguments, the book goes on, you can see that they assume that this bad stuff is happening because Job has sinned. I mean, we spank our children, God does the same. If we do something wrong, then God's going to spank us. And if you are being spanked, well then, you've done something wrong. It was very logical for Job's friends. And the only thing is, Job knew he hadn't done anything wrong. And these first two chapters of Job have labored to show us, both from God's own mouth and from the writer's perspective, that Job was innocent. He had not sinned in anything that he said, and neither did he accuse God or blame him. So why is this happening? Well, Job's friends assume that it's happening because Job had sinned. And all he needed to do, simple solution, is repent. You may have grown up in a church where you were told this. You got stuff, bad stuff going on in your life? There's sin in your life. You got to look at yourself and figure out what's wrong. As soon as you repent, well, then all things will be put back in order. It's actually what's called retribution theology, and it is wrong. It's, it's, it's the, it says that God prospers good people, God punishes wicked people. 
All Job needs to do and all we would need to do is repent and God will restore his fortunes. It's that simple. The problem is this doesn't bump up, this bumps up against a major contradiction when you look at the fact that every single disciple of Jesus died a martyr's death. And, and Jesus died a martyr's death, the one who never sinned. So to, it, it, this retribution theology does not work. We have to back up and, and look at the bigger picture of what the Bible reveals. Well, in the end, I hope it's not too much of a spoiler for you, but the book of Job shows that Job's friends were wrong. And actually what the friends suggest that Job do played right along with Satan's accusation against Job. In telling Job to repent in order to escape the suffering and that he would be restored, they're actually tempting Job to seek God for reward. In other words, does Job fear God for nothing? This is Satan's accusation. The friends were coming right along with that and saying, you want, God, you want to fear God? You want to be blessed of God again? Then change your behavior. But Job doesn't give in to that. Job knows he's innocent, and so his big problem over and over and over, and he expresses it, is, why is this happening? I need an audience with God. If we can just get together and talk about this, uh, we can work it out. Why is this happening, Lord? Um, I was tickled to read back in the 80s the general manager of the New Orleans Saints, Jim Finks, remember, was asked one time after a loss what he thought of the referees. Finks said, well, I'm not allowed to comment on lousy officiating. <laughs> That's how we feel in the church a lot of times, isn't it? You know, we're not allowed to talk about how we really feel about how God's running the world. But we think he's doing a lousy job. We would love it if he would just do it the way we think it ought to be done. Job wasn't afraid to be honest. It's amazing. As Job questions God's justice and he despairs of his own life, he still refuses to turn his back on God. Yet though he slay me, Job said, yet I will trust in him. Job simply wants to know why. Why? Do you remember the Mars Polar Lander? Remember that? This was sort of a, an effort by uh, NASA to send this robot, this robot rocket, to Mars and take a bunch of samples and it would send back data from Mars. It launched in, when did it launch? Uh, I don't remember, I think it was 1999. And it took a year for, almost a year, for this uh, robot rocket to get to Mars. And it made it all the way into the atmosphere of Mars, and then NASA lost contact with it. They're not sure if it landed or if it crashed or what happened, but they sort of assumed that all went well. But the problem is they weren't getting any information or data back from it. And it was sort of an embarrassment. I remember reading about that when it happened. And I thought, I can't imagine investing $165 million in something and having zero return on your investment. No, no communication from Mars. Silent. And then I thought, isn't that the way it is with the Lord sometimes? We've invested a lot in our walk with God. We've given Him our lives. We're trusting Him with eternity. We are walking by faith and not by sight. Wouldn't it? Is it too much to just ask for some answers sometimes? 
Lord, I'd really like to know why this is happening. Silence. It's like we sent a robot to Mars. We don't hear anything. Well, let's turn a few chapters later, actually quite a few, look at chapter 38. We are skipping through all the conversations of Job and his friends where they're saying, you have done wrong. You just need to repent and God will bring it all back to you. Job says, I haven't done anything wrong. I want an audience with God. I want to know why. Why, why, why? Why is this happening? Well, finally, God speaks to Job. And boy, does he speak in chapter 38. Um, before we read that, I, I remember reading a, a story about a journalist who was assigned to, uh, uh, in Jerusalem, and she had an apartment that overlooked the Western Wall, and she looked over the Western Wall, and she noticed that there was one particular Jew who would go there every single day. This elderly man, three times a day, would go up to the wall and would pray. And so she thought, well, this will make a great story. She goes down and asks this man, you know, about his life, and they kind of get to know each other. And finally she says, why? I'm, I'm curious, you know, for 25 years you've come here to the wall, and, and three times a day you pray here at the wall. She says, how, do, how does that make you feel when you, when you do that? And the old man said, like I'm praying to a wall. <laughs> Oh, I thought, that is so great, an answer. <laughs> you ever feel like that? Like you're just praying to an open Bible? Like you're just invested so much in your walk with God, but you're not hearing anything from Mars? Look at chapter 38, verses 1 and following. God finally speaks. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a thick cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a, a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Well, the Lord goes on asking question after question 
after question that Job cannot begin to answer. I read some interesting responses that students gave on a science test. These are obviously students that didn't know the answer. <laughs> Here's a few of the answers. The pistol of a flower is its only protection against insects. <laughs> Three kinds of blood vessels are, are arteries, veins, and caterpillars. <laughs> to remove dust from the eye, pull the eye down over the nose. The alimentary canal is located in the northern part of Indiana. <laughs> and I like this one. Mushrooms always grow in damp places, and so they look like umbrellas. <laughs> oh. Well, I love that, because the reality is we know about as much about science if we were to try to answer these questions that Job was asked. God begins by informing Job that God is not the one on trial. God says, I will ask you, and you answer me. And amidst Job's confusion of why he, a blameless man, should experience such suffering and hurting, God broadens Job's horizons a little bit by giving him a simple science quiz. God asked Job questions about zoology, astronomy, oceanography, none of which Job can answer. Essentially, God is telling Job, said, Job, if you can't understand simple things like how to build a planet, <laughs> then why are you asking me about the moral realm? In other words, if you can't understand, if you can't understand questions about uh, things you can see, how can I begin? to describe to you answers to the questions you're asking me about things you cannot see. We'll never know the, the tone in which the Lord asked these, if, if it was with genuine compassion, if it was harsh. But however it landed on Job, it had its effect. Turn a couple of chapters further and look at chapter 40. God's not quite done. I heard about a little boy one time. He was out playing in the dirt, mud. Came to the table all filthy, and his mother said, how many times have I told you to go wash your hands? So he got down from the table, walked over to the bathroom, and his mother could hear him muttering, Jesus and germs, Jesus and germs. That's all I ever hear around here, and I've never seen either one. I love that. Job, even though he was innocent, he lacked knowledge. He had a limited point of view. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. And God rebukes Job for one thing. He has a limited point of view. Chapter 40 begins, and God just really continues what, what he's asked, what he was asking Job. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. 
What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Well, let's look at Job's reply. God goes on, talking about all kinds of natural questions. Job's response in chapter 42, the last chapter of the book. Look at the first couple of verses. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is Job's basic conclusion. Even though Job basically stammered to understand God's reasons, Job still trusted that God had his reasons. That's important. We can't understand God's reasons, but we can understand that he has them. We can't understand God's sovereignty, but we can understand that he's sovereign. This is where Job landed. And here's a principle that we can apply to our lives that we lift from the experience of Job. It's simply this. Knowing why gives us no relief in suffering, but trusting God gives peace. Knowing why gives no relief in suffering, but trusting God gives peace. So often when we're struggling, we want to know why, and that's our major question. God, why is this happening? As if the Lord were to tell us why, then we could approve it or disapprove it. But the reality is, even if God were to explain why, it would probably be so vast that we couldn't wrap our arms around it. The answer would be so vast that we couldn't wrap our arms around it. If we were to somehow find out that what we're struggling with right now is somehow in the next 77 years in April in the afternoon going to bring somebody to Jesus Christ. We couldn't wrap our arms around that. And that there is a network of just billions and billions of ways that the Lord is working in the billions and billions of people all throughout history and even alive today to bring about and to move forward his sovereign purposes in the world. We can't fathom it. Knowing why gives us no relief, but trusting God gives us peace. Job said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, Job says, I don't have to understand. I only need to know that you're in control. I don't have to understand. I only need to know that you're in control. In times of suffering, God reveals himself to us not in affirmation or answers to our whys, but rather in affirmation of his total control. The fact is we can't understand the questions we're asking God. Even 4,000 years after Job's questions were asked by him, they haven't gone away. We're still dealing with it. 
But a couple of encouraging things come from this study, and that is that, first of all, God is not deaf to our cries. He responded to Job. He's not deaf to our cries. He hears us. If you read through the book of Psalms, so much of the book of Psalms is just emotion being gushed on the page. There are parts of the Psalms that you read and you think, wow, is it okay to pray that? I mean, some of David's Psalms that he writes talk about some very violent things that he wants to happen to his enemies. Can I pray that when Jesus said to love my enemies? This is David's emotion. And God can hear how we're feeling, even if it isn't theologically right. He can handle it. God isn't deaf to our cries. And second, God is in control of this world. All of the questions that God asked Job about the natural world are questions that we've never even thought about before. Command the morning? You mean God does that? How does he do that? And don't forget the original challenge had to do with Job's faith. Would Job trust a sovereign, silent God when everything around Job was confusing? He did. His conclusion was wonderful. I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42, verse 2. That's where he landed. Jesus was once asked, Lord, who sinned? this man or his parents, that this man should be born blind? Jesus' answer was this. It was neither that this man nor his parents sinned, but it was in order that the work of God might be displayed in him. See, here's another principle. This one takes great maturity. God's Word teaches us to see suffering not from its cause, but toward its purpose. Our question is not, God, why is this happening? Our question is, uh, to what end? We're very familiar with Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We could almost mutter it in unison like the Lord's Prayer. We know it so well. God causes all things to work together for those good and his cause according to his purpose. <sighs> but do we know Romans 8.29? The very verse that comes right after that says this, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. You see, the purpose of the Romans 8.28, all things good, the purpose of the, the, the struggles in our lives toward the good that God designs that good, we're told in the very next verse, is that we be conformed to the image of his Son. By instinct, we focus on the why. God is focused on the to what end. Now, I told you the story at the beginning about that doctor who delivered the little girl with the deformed foot, how he considered it a mistake, how he wished he'd never done that, how he wished he'd had the courage to allow her to die at her birth. Well, that's not the end of the story. Let me read you the rest of the story in the doctor's own words. He writes, Through the many years that I've been in our hospital, there's developed a custom of staging an elaborate Christmas party each year for the employees, the nurses, the doctors, and the staff. 
One year, a great blue floodlight at the back was turned on very slowly and gradually covering the tree with increasing splendor, brighter and brighter, until every ornament was aflame. On the opposite side of a stage, a curtain was slowly drawn, and we saw three lovely musicians, all in shimmering white evening gowns. They played very softly in unison with the organ and a harp and a cello and a violin. I was especially fascinated by the harpist. She, was, she played extraordinarily well. I waited, and when the short program was over, I went to congratulate the chief nurse on the unusual effects that she had arranged. And as I sat alone, there came running down the aisle a woman I didn't know. She came to me with arms outstretched and said, Doctor, you saw her, she cried. You must have recognized your baby. That was my daughter who played the harp. And I saw you watching her. Don't you remember the little girl who was born with only one good leg 17 years ago? We tried everything at first, but now she has an artificial leg on that side, but you'd never know it. She can walk, she can swim, she can almost dance. But best of all, through all those years when she couldn't do those things, she learned to use her hands so wonderfully. She is my whole life, and now she is so happy, and here she is. As we spoke, this sweet young girl had quietly approached us, her eyes glowing. And she stood beside me, and the mother said, This is your first doctor. Uh, my doctor, her mother said. Her voice trembled, and I could literally... Uh, I could see her literally swept back as I was through all the years of heartache to the day when I told her what she had to face. He was the first one to tell me about you. He brought you to me. Impulsively, I took the child in my arms, and across her warm young shoulder, I saw the creeping clock of the delivery room 17 years before. I lived again those awful moments when her life was in my hand, when I had decided on deliberate infanticide. I held her away from me and looked at her. You will never know, nor will anyone know, just what tonight has meant to me. Go back to your harp and play uh, Silent Night again. I have a load on my shoulders no one has seen, a load only you can take away. Her mother sat beside me and quietly took my hand as her daughter played, and I think I found the answer and the comfort I had waited for so long. I love that story, but the reality is, for many of us, our harpist doesn't come till glory. Uh, we've had friends, we've had relatives, we've had heartaches in life that death, for one example, has taken away any opportunity for reconciliation and has taken away any opportunity for the fuzzy feelings that this story gives us. But the reality is this story is just a glimpse of what awaits us in glory. Because if the scripture's true, and it is, then one day we will be able to sit and listen at the awe-inspiring word of God as he shares with us the amazing ways that he has worked through the challenges in our lives to bring about his glory and the good of so many people. The book of Job asks not why did God allow it or even how, because Job couldn't understand that, but rather how will Job respond? And that's really what we're facing with 
faced with as well. How are we going to respond when life throws us the things that it has thrown with us, thrown to us? We will respond by trusting and that knowing that God's word teaches us to see suffering, not from its cause, asking why, but toward its purpose, to what end. And that purpose, one day, we will understand. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, thank you for um, this time together in this first of the poetical books. Such a challenging book in so many ways because it taps the nerve of where we live. We can identify with Job so easily because we struggle. And we struggle without answers. Questions we've often asked you, Lord, go years without any inkling of answers as to why they occur. But your word reminds us through Job and throughout the rest of the scripture that you have bigger desires both for our lives and in the plans of the world than simply giving us answers. And if Job teaches us anything, even if you were to answer, we couldn't understand it all. Thank you for the wisdom that withholds from us what we couldn't bear anyway. Thank you for the wisdom that reminds us that our challenge is not to understand. Our challenge is to trust and to obey and to cling to you. I love Winston Churchill's words where he said, If you're going through hell, keep going. Give us the strength, Lord, to keep going and to trust you until that day that we see all the answers and we're able to give you the glory in a way that we could not possibly do now. These things we ask in the name of our Savior who modeled this for us. Amen.